James chapter 5 and verse number 1. We're just going to deal with uh, six verses this evening, so we might have an early finish this evening. James chapter 5, verses 1 down to verse number 6. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the labourers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. And then it continues, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And that's our text. And that text is almost Old Testament prophetic in character. It has that sound about it. If you were reading that, for example, from the book of Isaiah, or maybe Ezekiel, or Jeremiah, you wouldn't be surprised. And it has that idea of social justice. It has the idea of condemning behaviour, which is very commonplace in our capitalistic Western society. But behaviour, nonetheless, that is condemned by James here as he speaks about the ultimate consequence of behaving as he describes at the expense of other people's well-being. So he's going to speak about these basic things. And there is an application of this to us today, which is that we may not feel that we are rich people and we may not be in positions of, a, of employment. Nonetheless, what he's going to speak about ought to be the characteristic of us as Christians and how we conduct ourselves with other people, whether they're Christians or not Christians, it doesn't matter. So as he speaks about these things that people sometimes call social justice issues, they're very practical issues, and he is bringing again another test. And it's another practical test. It's the test of someone who has their spiritual status or condition revealed by their conduct and their behaviour. And that very often is the case in the Bible. That the Bible doesn't emphasise so much what we say, but places greater emphasis on the backing up of what we say by our character and by what we do. And so there needs to be consistency between the two things. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21, the Lord Jesus spoke in a very similar way, and he said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he spoke about wealth, and he spoke about these issues, and he spoke about these being really a true indicator of our heart condition, how we handle these things. One writer summarised this section in the following way and said, James is proclaiming serious judgment against the wicked wealthy who profess Christian faith and perhaps even profess to live a Christian life, but whose real God is money. Now, these may well be true Christians or not, I think not, but they may well be, but it can be applicable to us who are Christians here this evening. Now, let's come to this then in verse number one. He uses this expression that's translated in the authorised version as go to 
now. And that's a similar expression. In fact, the same expression if you just run your eye back up the page to verse number 13 of chapter 4. You'll see that expression again used. Go to now. And it introduces a new group of people that he's going to speak to and about. He's been speaking from verse 13 down to verse 17 of chapter 4 about people who conducted their business life presumptuously. People who took for granted tomorrow, people who took for granted their plans and assumed that because they had made plans, then that's what's going to happen. And they excluded God. They thought that they were sovereign in their own lives. But actually they excluded the true sovereign one who is God and were rebuked as a result. And therefore, in verse 14, we have that commonly quoted verse, whereas ye know not what shall be in the morrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And James says, listen, the way that you ought to think and speak is, for this you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. So he's not saying you shouldn't make plans and you shouldn't have structure to your life. He's not saying that, but he's saying that all your plans should be subject in your thinking to the will of God. So it's not just a DV kind of idea. It's not just a form of words that you tag on to anything that speaks about the future. It's a state of thinking. It's a state of mind. So we make our plans subject to the sovereign God that we live before. Now he's introducing... A second group. The first group were careless about taking God into their thoughts. This second group are positively wicked in their practice. And again, it's within the business sphere. So he speaks of them and says this, describing them as rich men. Now, I'd have to say to you that that term is a relative term. So, for example, in our society, we would consider someone to be rich who has plenty of disposable income, perhaps, or who is able to purchase various indicators of wealth, such as certain types of car or property, or have certain lifestyles. So someone who lives in very large properties or drives very expensive cars or wears expensive clothes, these would be indicators of being rich. But when you go to other countries, even today, indicators of wealth are different. For example, in an extreme case, being able to provide food for your family on a daily basis, is an indicator of wealth. Having more clothes than you can wear at one time is an indicator of wealth. Having any form of transport, if someone had any form of transport, even if it was a bike, then that would be an indicator of wealth. I remember one of the first times I went to Sri Lanka years ago, and the war was still going on and we travelled away to the east coast and then we travelled up north, up the east coast of Sri Lanka, which was very rural. And um, the, the situation was quite um, tense in relation to the war. So we travelled away up and people were very poor there. They had, they had very little by way of this world's goods. 
And I remember there was a man who was a hunter. We just called him the hunter because we couldn't pronounce his name. And he didn't, you weren't allowed to um, possess firearms or any weapons um, in that area of Sri Lanka. But he had made his own gun. He, he hadn't bought it, he'd made it. And he used to hunt. And uh, his, he really, if he could get a leopard, then that would be a great status symbol. And he got one. You weren't allowed to kill him, but he got one. And he sat up a tree for ages till he got it. Eventually he got it and he skinned it. And we saw, the, we saw yeah, this uh, skin of a leopard that he, he kept secret as a kind of trophy. But anyway, he... He couldn't get around and he couldn't get his family and they couldn't get down to the meetings and so on. So um, Charles Davidson, who was with me, and I, we decided we'd buy him a bike. So he really thought, that's, that's no big deal. I think it cost $50, 50 US dollars for a bike. Well, I remember presenting this bike to the hunter and it was like handing over the keys to a Range Rover because no one else had a bike. So he could cycle and he could pile his whole family onto that bike. And the whole family got on the bike, no problem. You had three or four on the bike. And he could transport his family when no one else could. So he was wealthy in that context. He's a rich man because he had a bike. So rich, being rich is a very, um, well, it's a kind of very subjective thing. And the truth of the matter is that you and I are among the very top percent of rich people in the world because we live in this country and because we can eat every day without thinking, because we never have a lack of clothes, believe it or not, to put on and because we always can access transport. We have clean water we never think about, we have medical care, we have medicines that we never have to pay for at the point of need. So we are extremely wealthy in terms of the global family, if you like in humanity. So this is a relative term. So although it doesn't apply to us in our capitalistic thinking, you don't think that you are rich. The reality is that you are rich. <coughs> this context is not speaking to people and condemning them for being rich. There is actually nothing wrong with being rich according to the Bible. There's nothing wrong with wealth by itself. But rather, the ability and the opportunity to create wealth ultimately does come from God. The skill set that you have that God has given you that enables you to work with and generate wealth is God-given. The opportunities for you to use the skill set that God has given you to create wealth for yourself and your, for your family is also God-given. We understand that. And the, the Old Testament bore that out and... The Lord Moses actually said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So they'd forgotten that it was God who enabled them to create wealth for themselves. And they thought that it was all about them. Now that's when the problem starts. The problem starts when we exclude God from our thinking. And the problems were more so in James' day because they were gaining wealth unrighteously. And then they were stewarding that wealth, they were using that wealth extremely selfishly. And we're going to see what he has to say about these things. 
So that's the context of the condemnation. He is not speaking about the need for a kind of socialist, communist idea in society and amongst the Christians. But rather, he is speaking about handling what God has given you the ability to create and to obtain. To obtain it righteously and to handle it righteously. So he says to those who are not doing or who are doing neither of these things, weep and howl. They're very dramatic expressions. The word weep means to sob out loud. It's actually a word that's used for mourning. And the word howl is an onomatopoeic word. And in the the Greek, it was very descriptive, even its pronunciation. And it meant to, to howl out loud vocally. So it's like a it's like a wailing. So you have a strong sobbing and a wailing. These are severe expressions of grief and mourning. He's saying this, you need to mourn, you need to repent, you need to grieve. And you need to grieve those of you who are wealthy, those of you who are conducting yourself in the way that he's going to describe, for, here's the explanation, why should you grieve, why should you weep, why should you howl? He says your miseries are coming upon you. So at the moment you're living well, at the moment you're living in luxury, at the moment you are... Basically, every desire of your heart is being satisfied. Life is great. Life is good. Listen, because you obtain your wealth in a certain way and because you handle your wealth in a certain way, there's coming a day of accountability. Now, that's true in this world. Those who are rich and abuse the poor, those who are rich and get rich through theft, whether it be stock exchange type theft and through it be the theft... Uh, that's a very presentable and with white collar stuff, or whether it be the people that rob other people's houses, theft is theft. And those who obtain wealth through theft and unrighteous conduct will have to account to God in a day to come. God will hold them accountable for it. He said this, your miseries will come upon you. And these are not just a general statement to a group. It's very specific He's speaking with personal suffering and distress. This is not a general period of tribulation on the earth. This is personal accountability he's talking about. Specific, personal. And it's coming in the future. Now, the expression that he uses here, the tenses indicate no particular specific prophetic time frame. So you can read into it what you will, but it doesn't say anything as to when this is going to be fulfilled. But it's coming. And this world and in history, men who have conducted themselves in this way will account for their behaviour, Christian or not Christian, in a coming day. The Old Testament is full of condemnation of this kind of behaviour. So then, he begins to describe the particular people and what they were doing. Notice, first of all, verse 2 and verse number 3. What they were doing was they were hoarding wealth. Now, that has never been something that my family's ever been accused of, of hoarding wealth. As soon as we get it, we like to give it, uh, usually into the economy. We like to spend, and so rather than save. So hoarding wealth has never been a real problem for us. Um, we've never really had to agonise about, will I hoard more wealth, um, to add to the, the big hoard we have already. It's never been like that. And in fact, what they were doing was this. 
And it says that your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. So there is wealth that is not being used. It's just sitting dormant. We'll come to the descriptions of it in a moment. And the fact that it's sitting dormant and bears the character of sitting dormant, which is rust, will be a witness to you. You had wealth and you never used it. God gave you the ability to create wealth and you just literally went and in this kind of context, dug a hole and stuck it in it just to possess it. Instead of using what wealth can do for good and for God. So he says you're hoarding it and it shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You've heaped treasure together for the last days. John MacArthur said this, my approach to life says that I want to go out of this world just at the time my money runs out. I want to make sure that I'm not hoarding up against some nebulous tomorrow that may never come. When God is calling for the proper investment of all that I have into his eternal kingdom right now. now I'm not going to give you his long quote, but he goes on and he does speak. For example, he speaks about the responsibilities we have to provide. He speaks about the responsibilities to provide for our family. And that is true. And God provides us, provides for us, that we might provide for our families. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Christians are told by Paul that the person that doesn't provide for their family is worse than an unbeliever. So that is a prime responsibility and we need to take that into account when we think about stewarding the resources God has given for us. We need to provide for those for whom we have responsibility in this world. He also speaks about providing for the local assembly. And Paul, when he's coming to Corinth, he speaks about them taking up a collection and says this, that on the first day of the week in chapter 16, let each of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him. So as God enables, as God prospers, as God provides opportunity, skill sets, and so on, so that you can create wealth for you and your family. Remember this, that you also need to provide for the local assembly and for the work of the local assembly. Christians should be stirred about that, feel the responsibility of that. And Paul gives advice to the assembly at Corinth that it is Rather than scrambling around to take up this offering he was speaking about when he arrived, he said, look, just, just set aside each lodge day and take up an offering and it will be much more um, orderly for it to be collected in that way. Also, we need to use our resources to provide for Christians who don't have what we have. Now, this is strongly taught in our Bible. And when you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul speaks to the assembly at Corinth that was a wealthy assembly. They came from, I think it's the northern part of Greece, and the southern part of Greece was very poor. That was the Macedonian assemblies. So the north was where the wealth was, and the south, I think I'm right in saying that, was where it was poor, it might be vice versa, but it was one or the other. 
and there was a north-south divide. There still is a north-south divide in our country, and all the wealth of the countries in the south and up here in the north, of course, we're all poverty-stricken. But there, there is that idea of north-south divide in Greece at the time of Paul's writing. But he writes to the, the wealthy assembly, Corinth, and says to them, for in a severe test of affliction, 2 Corinthians 8, their extreme poverty, the Macedonian saints, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So you have the, the very poor saints, very generous. You have the wealthy saints who are not. Paul says they are an example to you, for they gave according to their means. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you give according to us as the Lord has prospered you. So some can give more and some can give less and so on. And he says they gave as God enabled them but actually he says i want to testify they actually gave beyond their means they went way beyond what was reasonable what you could expect and they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints they were begging paul for the opportunity to share what meager things they had for him to take it they didn't want to be denied the opportunity of giving Man, that's a different way of speaking, isn't it? Imagine not wanting to be denied the opportunity of giving. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, it's such a dramatic example of this that I experienced personally. You don't often experience things like this. In fact, probably this is the only time I've ever had this. I remember going over to Indonesia one time, and I was given into my hand to take a gift, a financial gift, I think if I'm right, it was £500 was given to me to take out there and to pass on. So I had this money in an envelope and I carried it out with me and I passed it on. And I passed it to the assembly in Indonesia in Jakarta. And what happened was I was there for the full time of my visit and part of my visit was telling them also about visits I was making to Sri Lanka and I was showing the pictures of the saints in Sri Lanka and there was extreme poverty there that I was showing them and I remember yet how touching it was that as I left Indonesia I was given this envelope back and the writing in the front had been scored out and it was now written in English for our brethren and sisters in Sri Lanka and they gave it back to me and asked me to take it on to Sri Lanka which I did you see they didn't want to be denied the opportunity of giving so out of their poverty they just gave and it was such a striking thing for me to actually experience really in some senses what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 so when we think about money, and it's good to give context to this, when we think about money, we do have responsibilities. Paul, uh, James is not saying, you know, all the money that you get, give it all away. He's not talking like that. He's not saying that it's wrong to create wealth and there are requirements that are drawn upon your wealth and these requirements are good and right for family, for the assembly, for those who are poor, but also for outreach. This is what Paul, I think, is saying. Oh, that, sorry, not Paul. This is what the Lord Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 16 when he says something that's quite hard to understand. 
Make to yourself, I think this is the ESV translation, make to yourselves friends by means of the money of unrighteousness that when it fails, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. I think it could mean this. Use your money to make friends who will greet you in heaven when you get there. So use your money, to put it another way, to reach out to people in the gospel. Bring the gospel to people. Use your money. Make friends. Use it wisely. Be kind. Influence people for Christ. And you'll meet them in the glory one day. Using your wealth to make friends who will greet you in heaven when you get there. So that's, that's a bit of context. So let's come back to James and see what he says about this hoarding of wealth. Well, in James' time, there were three main indicators of wealth. So it wasn't a Ferrari, and it wasn't, you know, a, a house or a pool, and it wasn't whatever. In James' time, money was hoarded and kept and measured by not just coin, but by grain. So you could store it in this agricultural society. You could store grain in large bins or silos. James says, your grain, what you have stored, is corrupted. It is actually rotted. Now, you think about the, well, the Lord Jesus spoke about the man, the wealthy man, the rich fool. And you remember he spoke about the man pulling down his barns and building greater barns. And he wanted to store all his wealth and stockpile his wealth. It's the same idea. But then he says, not only your riches are corrupted, but the second indicator and the second kind of indicator of wealth was clothing. Still is today. So most of the poor in James's day only had one set of clothes, the clothes they had on their back. And that, by the way, is all the Lord Jesus possessed at the end of his life. He just had the clothes that was on his back. It was a sign of wealth to have more than one change of clothes. Which is why the Lord Jesus said, if you have two coats, pass on the one that you don't use to somebody who will. You see, that's a distribution of wealth. The Apostle Paul claimed this, that he had coveted no one's money or clothes in Acts 20 and verse 33 when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, I haven't coveted your money or clothes because clothes was an indicator of wealth. James echoes this. The Lord Jesus spoke about your wealth and moth and rust corrupting it. The moth would go for the clothes, the rust would go for the metal. So grain and clothing, and thirdly, gold and silver in verse 3. He says your gold and silver is cankered. Now James knows that these metals are not subject to literal rust. But he's using, I think, irony. He's using a kind of figure of speech to speak about this, that when God brings judgment, even those precious metals will be doomed to corruption. I mean, what good good was the gold and silver in Jerusalem in AD 70 when the city was destroyed? And... Actually, he says here, your gold and silver is cankered, it's full of rust. And then he says, the rust of them shall be a witness against you. 
So the ruin of these things that the rich had hoarded was a graphic picture of their own spiritual ruin as a result. So he personalises the rust and says the rust is bearing witness against you. The corrosion of the rust is slow, the corrosion and, and effect of the fire is fast. And he says, you've heaped treasure together for the last days. What have you been doing? Well, what are the last days? Well, usually in the Bible, the last days speak about a long period of time. They speak usually about the coming, the first coming of Christ until his second coming. And that period of time in which we live is, is called the last days in the Bible. 1 John 2 verse 17, my children, little children, it is the last time. And he's saying in this generation, in this time, how foolish is it to amass wealth that is measured in this way? Because it's ultimately going to be destroyed. We do not take it into eternity with us. So why hoard it here upon wealth, upon earth? So he's speaking about the hoarding of that which could be used otherwise for the benefit of others. So you think, that, for example, people who are billionaires. Now, to be fair, um, quite a few of them have committed to give away the vast majority of their wealth during their lifetime. But you think about people who have fortunes tied up in all sorts of investments and all sorts of properties. People who own 10, 12, 15 homes in the world and all this kind of stuff. People who have vast fortunes and actually it's hoarded and is not utilised. How foolish is that? Because that is wealth that is just sitting. You'd be as well going and burying it in the ground and covering it over. I read in one of the uh, websites, a story, I can't remember the whole details of it, but it's basically a story of a miser who collected all his wealth and he dug a big hole and he put all his money into a big hole in his garden and he covered it all over. He was delighted, he used to go over and kind of check it and it was still there and he felt really good about himself. And he had absolutely no intention of spending a penny over it. What happened was that a robber came and stole it all, took it all and, and took it all out and left a big hole. So he was devastated because he now felt he was poor. So his friend said to him, what you need to do is take a big stone, go and drop it into the hole, cover it all over and just pretend it's money. Because it's actually doing the same thing, which is nothing. So you're neither richer nor poorer. If you're never going to spend it, you'd be as well having a stone. What's the difference? It's just a commodity. And it's a commodity that doesn't do anything. So this is the idea of James God does not want us to be reckless and foolish and lacking responsibility. We have to be good stewards of what he gives us, but we have not to use money and hoard it in that sense. And that should not be a priority in our lives. But then secondly, he speaks about defrauding their workers. So he says in verse 4, Behold, the hire of the labourers, who've reaped down your fields which have you kept by, by fraud, they're crying, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of, the Lord of Seboth. So James is denouncing these wealthy landowners that were cheating their labourers out of their hard-earned wages. 
Now, this is a common enough problem to be mentioned several times in the Bible. Leviticus 19, verse 13 states this, You shall not oppress your neighbour, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Don't keep back someone's wages once that person has earned those wages. Now, often in that economy, people were, uh, were um, day workers, so they would queue up and they would work for a day and they would get paid for their day's labour and they would go home and that money was sufficient and all they had to buy food for the next day. So if you withheld your day's wage from that person, their family would go hungry for a day. So he condemns this because you're robbing the worker and his family of their daily bread. And it says this, their cries, their, their, their wages held back are a testimony against you. They cry out just like the rust was personified. So are those wages. It's like burning a hole in your hand. It doesn't belong to you. Someone else has earned it and you're keeping it back by fraud. Deuteronomy 24 verse 15. You shall give him his wages on the same day. Before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So you must not withhold wages that are due. For he says this, that their cries are entered the ears of the Lord of Saboth. Now Saboth is untranslated, it's transliterated right out of the Greek into English. And it just means Lord of hosts. So the Lord who is the almighty captain, Lord of hosts, of the angelic hosts of the armies of heaven, is the one who's hearing the cry of those who you're defrauding. And that's the one that we will answer to in a coming day. It's interesting, isn't it, how much of James speaks about issues that are social justice issues even today. Again, a reference, I remember being up in the hill country in Sri Lanka and uh, seeing those people who were out picking the, the tea off um, in, the, in the plantations. And you know, these women, for all the men, worked in the factory and the women worked in the fields and they had their basket on their back, which was held by a strap around their forehead and they would be out, that's to leave their hands free, and they're out and they're all day are picking leaves and putting them in the, the bag behind them and in all sorts of weather. And then they would take at the end of the day and they would uh, weigh the bag that was on the back and that was the amount that they get paid. And they needed to get paid. If they didn't get paid every day, then they had nothing for which to buy food. And that was the economy. And this is the sort of thing that's been spoken about. And it would have been a severe act of unrighteousness to take those bags of leaves off those women and not pay them. But that's what James is saying. And as Christians... We shouldn't allow that type of thought even to enter our mind that it's okay to do something like that, to withhold money that we are due to someone else. But then, verse number five, he speaks about the sin of self-indulgence. Now, there's a progression here. Hoarding wealth, increasing wealth through unrighteousness, because if someone worships their wealth, then they will do what it takes to increase that wealth. And they will even steal from the poor. And then he says this, they will use their wealth just for self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. Now he expresses the self-indulgence of the wealthy in three verbs. Number one, he says, you have lived in pleasure. Literally that reads, you have lived luxuriously 
on the earth. It basically means soft. It means, you know, you're completely soft. And you're stealing from people to give yourself extravagant comfort. And you think about the extremes of wealth and poverty in our world and people are extremely wealthy in certain areas of the world and it's at the expense of those who are extremely poor. He says, you must not do this. You'll be accountable for this kind of thing. You've lived in pleasure. You're using your wealth self-indulgently. He then goes on and says this, you have been wanton. Now, one thing leads to another because self-indulgence ultimately leads to vice. And that's what the word wanton means. So you've given yourself to vice and luxury turns to vice because a life without self-denial will run out of control in every area of its life. Now, that is a whole train of thought, by the way. That if we cannot deny ourselves anything, anything, if we cannot exercise self-denial, then think about where that eventually will lead you. So you will give in to your impulses and desires and pleasures. Now that will initially be simply for self-indulgence, uh, comfort and extravagance. But that will lead on to other things. Because if you've not learned to say no, then you will never say no. And you will give in and facilitate strong desires and lusts which are overtly sinful. And that's what he says happens here. So one thing leads to the other. That's why that's one of the reasons why they, by the way, why I think there is a whole teaching in the Bible about teaching children to say no and saying no to children. So that when you give a child the experience of being denied something. That's often not hard to do, but when you give a child the experience of being denied something, it is an important lesson that they get familiar with that experience when it's things that don't really matter. Small things. So that as they grow up, that experience is not an unusual experience for them. They understand the they have experienced this feeling of having to accept no. And then when they are able to experience that and accept that, then they will mature into actually being able to say no to themselves. But if they've never experienced accepting a no from someone else, they will never get to the stage of saying no for themselves. There's a whole teaching in the Bible about this in terms of growing in maturity and self-denial. The Apostle Paul spoke about that. He spoke about denying himself. And he spoke about the discipline of denying himself. And the spiritual, the spiritual importance of denying yourself in things that are material. Because ultimately then you can deny yourself when the big tests and temptations come into your life. You'll be able to say no to these things. So then he speaks about living in pleasure. He speaks about being wanton. Then he says, thirdly, you've nourished your hearts. That means to feed and nourish and fatten every single desire you have from the heart. You see, one thing leads to another. You have self-indulgence that leads to wantonness and vice that ultimately leads to this. 
And the idea is this, as in a day of slaughter, he says, you're like the animals, like the sheep and the oxen that are fattening themselves just as they're about to be slaughtered. So they're fattening themselves up, the animals, and they're just about to be slaughtered. He says, you're fattening yourself up. You're living for self and not for the things which are spiritual and eternal, and you're heading fast to a day of judgment. And all your thoughts are in the here and now and on the immediate material things of your life. But then he goes to verse 6. And here is another condemnation. So they've been hoarding greed. That has led to fraud. Fraud leads to self-indulgence. And self-indulgence becomes so consuming that you'll ultimately do anything to facilitate it. That's verse 6. You have condemned and killed the just. So that he robs from the poor. But then I think you have an example of what this is in the life of Ahab. I remember one of the first stories in the Bible that really caught my attention was the story of Naboth's vineyard. I remember hearing it preached on a tape, a literal cassette tape. And I remember when I heard this, it just kind of uh, caught my interest and attention. Look up the story of Naboth's vineyard in the life of Ahab. And what you discover is this, that Ahab was a wicked king who lived a life of luxury, who denied himself nothing. And that was facilitated by his wife Jezebel, who also denied him nothing. And you see, no one ever said no to Ahab, ever. And Ahab never said no to himself. So when the day came, one day when he's walking along the walls of his city, he looks out and he saw a piece of ground right hard by the city wall. And there was a vineyard in it. And he decided, I want that vineyard. So he went down to speak to the man who owned the vineyard called Naboth. And he said to Naboth, and it seemed quite a reasonable offer, he said, name your price, basically. I'll either give you a cash or I will give you a better vineyard somewhere else. But I want this vineyard. Now, to his shock and horror, Naboth said no. And no one said no to Ahab. He said no. Because he understood this, that God had said in Scripture that you should not sell on your inheritance. That the inheritance in the children of Israel was land that was given to you as part of your family inheritance and had to be passed down. You just were stewarding it. You didn't really own it. You were just passing it down through the generations. So it wasn't yours to sell. You couldn't and shouldn't sell your inheritance. He said, I can't. I won't. So Ahab went in the huff. Actually did. He went to his bed turned his face to the wall, it says, and he went to eat his tea. That's actually what he did. Now, why did he behave like a child? Because as a child and as an adult, no one ever said no to Ahab. So when he's not familiar with this. So he's like a child. He's never learned how to accept no. And sometimes, well, you understand if a child behaves like that because it's childish behaviour. It's perfectly in keeping with the age of the child to behave like that. But it's not okay when children get bigger to behave like that. It's certainly not okay for adults to behave like that. Sometimes we do. Well, Ahab's 
wife, Jezebel, she makes it worse because she's looking at him and she's saying, nobody says no to my husband. So she came up with a scheme, read it for yourself, and ultimately Naboth was executed and he was murdered. Jezebel had him murdered and gave the vineyard to Ahab. You see, because no one ever says no to Ahab. And because of that, Naboth was condemned and killed. And he was a just man. It's an illustration of this. That's what happens, you see. And as Christians, obviously, we shouldn't behave like this, but we ought to recognise the path that James is talking about. The progression and degeneration of behaviour and character. So that as Christians... We should steward what God has given us. Yes, we create wealth by skills that God has given us and abilities and opportunities that are all God-given. We understand that. And we all create different levels of wealth in our society and with different jobs and different incomes and so on. That's not the issue. The issue is, what do we do with what God has given us the ability and opportunity to, to possess? What do we do with it? So they were hoarding it. We shouldn't do that. They were just using it for self-indulgence. We shouldn't do that either. And then that self-indulgence became the use for it. They were using it for vice and for sin. And then because there was a progression, it says here, ultimately they condemned and killed the just. And it says this, he doth not resist you. Now you can read that two ways. You could read it that God does not resist you. Or you can read it that the just do not resist you. I think it can read both ways. So it could be that God allows these things to happen in the short term because there's coming a day of accountability. Or it could be that the just behave as the just do behave and accept and live by faith and accept the injustice and so on. And that is true very often as well. Because they will not return unrighteousness with unrighteousness. So when they're stolen from, they will not steal in return. Whichever way you take it, you can see the point. They're getting away with it in the short term. That's the point. James says, you may get away with it in the short term, but you won't get away with it in the long term. There's coming a day of accountability. Well, as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus This sort of thing ought to be part and parcel of the way that we view life. This ought to be almost instinctive for us as Christians. That we would look at that type of behaviour as unacceptable. We wouldn't want to be that sort of person. We don't want to be the person who has lots of wealth and they actually don't use it. Bad stewards. We don't want to be the sort of person who's got resources and only thinks of themselves and no one else. We don't want to be the sort of person that uses our resources to facilitate sin. And we certainly don't want to be the sort of person who obtains our wealth by unrighteous means. You see, Christians don't need to be told that. Well... Paul writes to the Ephesian assembly 
that assembly that he's going to bring this great high-fluting doctrinal truth about uh, the, the, the church and the church which is his body and all the rest of it and, and, and reveal great sweeping truth to this assembly. He says to the same people, stop stealing. Let him that stole steal no more. He says, you're stealing. Stop it. That's the same Christians that he's actually revealing all this great depth of truth to. He says, you're still stealing. So as Christians, we ought not to steal. Is that too simple? We ought not to steal. Taking what does not belong to us. We shouldn't do it. Sin. And so these things should be instinctive, should be characteristic of us. Let them be characteristic of us. Because these are actually tests of reality. You know, someone could spout forth and speak with great uh, knowledge and great oratory or whatever about truths that are found in the Bible. But it doesn't mean very much if they steal. It doesn't mean very much if they are unjust or greedy or selfish. You see, all that kind of head knowledge is meaningless unless it impacts the sort of person that we are and the type of life that we live. So we have one more session of James to go and we're going to deal with that in two weeks uh, from this evening.